Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Morning, happy Easter to everyone. Oh, come on. Happy Easter to everyone here. Like to welcome all of you here today on this beautiful, is it still sunny? I think it's still sunny, this beautiful sunny day. And I would like to welcome all of our Raider fans here. One time, if you come back next week, we will um, reject you, okay? No, but we love you. We love, we love all people. So welcome. Happy Easter to everyone. If you don't know uh, my name, my name is Chris. My wife, Kelly, and I, we lead Capital Church, and we're so blessed to be a part of the greatest church in the United States of America. Come on. Obviously, we're, we're biased, but, but we're blessed to, to serve you guys and, and to be a part of this wonderful uh, community. If you don't know anything about us, our claim to fame is that we have, yes, we have seven children. We have three sets of twins. It's totally miraculous. People often ask me, what does it feel like to raise seven kids, to, to parent seven kids? I often quote Paul, who said in the New Testament, I die daily. <laughs> So it feels like death, but out of death comes blessing. At least that's what we're trying to tell ourselves at this point. But no, we have seven beautiful uh, children. What's going on here this morning, guys? What's going on? What's going on? But my wife and I were totally normal. We're not mountain people. This is totally not. I'm the last person that should have seven children. But God blessed me with seven kids. So anyways, we are so glad that you made it here today. All right? Uh, So we're going to begin with the phrase. uh, I'm not actually going to begin with it, but we're going to talk about Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus is risen from the dead. So what does that mean? I'm going to spend about four hours talking to you. So forget about barbecue. Forget about your Easter plans. We're going to spend some time, sort of kidding. We're going to spend just a few moments talking to you about what does Jesus rising from the dead really mean. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, I bless everyone in this room and bless every son and daughter in this place. Lord, I thank you that you're with them. I thank you that everyone in this room would know your everlasting love. I thank you that everyone would know the blessing that they have in you, Jesus. And Father, I thank you that any muddled thinking that we, we all have, that Lord, you would clear up and Lord, you would bring insight in revelation into who you are, your character, and what Easter is all about. We bless you, Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. I remember I was six years old. Uh, I was living in Portland, Oregon. And uh, there were only two uh, TV channels. We had like a little black and white TV back then. I was growing up in the early 80s, late 70s. And uh, so there was only two channels that, that we could watch. It was PBS and it was uh, the news channel. So I, I grew up a very depressed kid, okay? 
But PBS, it was, it was interesting. There's one PBS special. My, my parents, they didn't know that I watched it, but it was, uh, I think it was Leonard Nimoy, the original Spock. Do we have any Trekkies here? Okay. I'm not a Trekkie. just want to recognize all our Trekkies out there. But Leonard Nimoy, the original Spock, uh, on this PBS special was talking about like intergalactic travel and the possibility of aliens. And he was talking about death and life after death. And I'm six. And I, I watched this whole episode. The score behind it has haunted me ever since. I mean, it, it just was one of those weird specials. Didn't tell my parents. That night, I go to sleep. I wake up probably about 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, my mind is racing. I'm thinking about intergalactic travel. I'm thinking about deep space. And then I'm thinking about the possibility of aliens. And I'm trying to square that and harmonize that with the existence of God. And like my mind's all messed up. I was a little philosopher back then. And so I'm just thinking through all these different things. And then this thought passed through my mind. And I started sobbing. And I remember this moment. I was just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And the thought that passed through this kind of stream of consciousness that I was in is that I realized that there would be one day that I would lose everyone in my life that I love, that I would lose my sisters, that I would lose my parents, that I would lose my grandparents. And deep down inside, I knew, I was doing the deep work of theology at the age of six. I knew that was absolutely incomprehensible. And I could not, as a little six-year-old boy, could not process, could not even, because death was such an abstract thing for me at that point, could not process losing the ones that I loved. I was working with the assumption that I would live to about 200, 200 years old or whatever. And then my sister, Rochelle, woke up. She was about four years old and she saw me sobbing and she asked why I was crying. So I told her everything. She started sobbing uncontrollably and I went back to sleep. (laughs) She brings up that story twice a year. She's yet to forgive me for that. So if we're going to talk about Jesus is risen, what do we have to talk about? Right? We're not going to mock God today with fake sentimentality. I'm just not that kind of pastor, okay? Now, we're going to start Anglican. I'll be an Anglican pastor for about 20 minutes, and then the last 15 minutes, I'll go full Pentecostal on you, okay? (laughs) But first, we're not going to mock God with just being sentimental when it comes to, oh, Jesus has come back from the dead, because we need to understand fully what that means. There's a lot of people out there that are muddled, and they're thinking about what does that actually mean? Fast forward six years after I had that moment sobbing, thinking about losing my loved ones. I was about 12 years old. It was a beautiful day. I had no concerns at all. I, I think it was shooting hoops in, in my, my front yard. And I remember my dad walked out. I knew something was wrong. He told me he got a phone call and he, had his, he has a particular voice and that particular voice indicates that there's something wrong. And so he said, son, I got to tell you something. So he walked me back into the house. I remember sitting down And he told me, and the emotions are still with me, he told me that a close friend of mine had been killed in uh, a car accident. I remember in that moment, the age of 12-ish, 13 years old, it just felt like everything in my life had stopped. I'm trying to process. I mean, how 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 do you process suffering and death? In the words of one scholar, I was experiencing the terror of creation. I remember uh, as, as my, after, like ex post facto, after my dad talked to me about what happened to my, my close friend, I remember unsuccessfully trying to process the anguish and the horror of, of what happened to him. I, I remember that day, the illusion of indestructibility vanished. Americans, we think we're indestructible at the age of 12, that left me. I no longer, I realized, I no longer would see my friend, no longer would hear his voice. 
Uh, I would no longer be able to listen to gospel gangsters with him, which is our favorite thing. No longer be able to throw the football with him. Death at the age of 12 for me was no longer abstract. It was real. It was irreversible. And for me, it was absurd. I remember at his funeral, uh, I, I was thinking, and really on an intuitive level, I was doing the deep work of theology. I was thinking that life wasn't supposed to be like this. Death is, is an irrational absurdity at the age of 12. I remember asking God in my head, trying everything in, in my bones not to cry and to sob as I see my friend's casket. I'm like, God, where, where are you? I knew God loved me with an everlasting love, but I was trying to square that with how could God allow death to reign on this planet? I remember asking God, how, God, where, where, where are you? I never questioned the love of God. I did question why he would allow this rogue force to spoil God's good purposes. Well, in the words of one philosopher, humans want above all else. Everyone say above all else. Above all else, to be reunited with our loved ones, with their voices, and with their faces. This is the universal longing of every human heart. Can I get an amen? amen? At the heart of reality, please hear me, and this is for everyone. This is just a select few people. This is for everyone here in this room, everyone on the globe. At the heart of reality is our desire above all things to be understood and loved rather than to be alone, and therefore above all not to die and not to have our loved ones die on us. The question is, why are we like that? Now, certainly we all have disordered loves. My sons have a disordered love for football and Xbox, right? And we're working on that. Um, some of you have a disordered love for coffee and Diet Pepsi, I don't know, and maple bars. And some of us have a disordered love more seriously with our career. And some of us have an inordinate affection for the Dallas Cowboys and you need counseling because you're weird. Right, right. So there's a thousand different ways that, you know, certainly we have desires and affections and some of those are good and some of those are, are inordinate. But here is the thing. Ultimately, we do not want the bottom of who, of who we are. We do not want to be alone and we do not want to be separated from those whom we love. The question is why? So I'm going to take you through 14 acts in this message. Expl kidding. I'm going to take you through four acts, five acts to explain, okay, why are we the way we are, right? Why are you the way you are, you know? Well, the Bible tells us in Act 1 that God made creation in humans out of overflowing generous love. In Genesis chapter 2, God placed two image-bearing blessable partners named Adam and Eve, placed them in a garden to tend it and to cultivate it. But they were not to do it alone. In instead... God wanted to work with them together in a loving relationship with these human blessable partners to bless the world. It's at this point that the biblical story offers a definition of what it means to be human, and it's this. It is none other than to be in a relationship with God and others. It is to be known and to know other people. It is to be blessed and to bless other people. To be human is to be seen and to see other people. To be human is to be understood fully and to understand other people. In other words, to be human is to be relational. In the words of one author, he says, we are more domestic than monastic. 
What is he trying to say? He's simply highlighting the fact that no one should go camping alone up in the mountains where bears can devour their flesh. Can I get an amen to that? You and I are not designed to be alone. We are relational creatures. We are made in the image of God. Imago Dei, right? God has designed us to work in partnership with him. God designed us to be blessed by him, to work with him, to bless the world. What we have in Genesis, though, is a tragic turn. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, Genesis tells us that day that they rebelled against God, that they, what? Died. Everyone say died. Are you still with me? I promise we're going to get to the good part. Some of you are like, oh my God, what kind of Easter message is this? I promise we'll get to the good stuff here pretty quick. Curiously, they did not instantly evaporate into tiny little dust particles like the Avengers, right? What we find the Bible tells us instead that Adam and Eve were banished from the living presence of God. They were banished from intimacy from God. God, in essence, removes his presence, his blessings, and in effect, death then reigns over God's good, beautiful world. Now, let me say something really quick. Many of us are like, well, that was Adam and Eve. That was, they, they sinned. They rebelled against God. They decided to, to define terms on, uh, you know, based on their own definitions of reality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the thing. Every person in this room has participated in Adam and Eve's sin. Schultz and Nietzsche, he said this a long time ago. He said, many people want to take a few wicked people that we, we identify as wicked and place them in a certain area and destroy them all. He goes, the problem with that is that the line of good and evil runs through every human heart. Everyone in this room has sinned. Everyone in this room has failed. Everyone in this room has participated in this original rebellion against God. So what is death then? Death, yes, is a biological reality, but first, it is the profound dismantling of our loving relationship with God and others. In other words, it's a comprehensive breakdown of, of shalom. Shalom is this, this profound Hebrew word which simply means a state where all relationships are well-ordered. Your relationship with God is well-ordered. Your relationship with yourself is well-ordered. Your relationship with others are, is well-ordered. Your relationship with creation is well-ordered. Well Everything in life is well-ordered in a relational fashion. This is shalom. The day Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, shalom was dismantled. And death then was released. In other words, death is not just, again, a biological reality. It is an anti-relational spiritual force that keeps us from God's blessing, God's intimacy with God, God's presence, God's voice, God's life. Can I get an amen? Act two, we come to John chapter 11. Famously, and this is, this is a remarkable passage, contains the shortest verse in the Bible. Verse 35 says, Jesus... Jesus wept. So the question was, why was Jesus sobbing? Why was he sobbing? Many scholars have many different theories. This is my theory and I'm totally right, okay? But I think that Jesus is sobbing because his friend Lazarus had just died and Jesus is now seeing his friend's tomb for the very first time. Jesus is weeping over the death of the one he loved. 
Remember, love is an anti-relational dynamic and Jesus is weeping over his friend. But before this, John tells us that Jesus was also deeply moved as he sees the, the funeral proceeding leading up to uh, the tomb where Lazarus was in. And, it, and the text reads that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. That word is, has, a, has a range of meaning, but probably the best way to describe being deeply moved in your spirit is to be enraged. So Jesus is wrathful in this passage and Jesus is emotional over the death of Lazarus. What John is saying in act two here is that death is not to be redescribed. Death is an enemy that Jesus intends to defeat. And defeat he does by raising Lazarus back from the dead. See, here's the problem with all the great religions. You have, you have, if you want to think seriously about your life, you have to think seriously about death. And all great religions have an answer to death. The Hindu cosmos, they say at the point of death, like you, you go that you have multiple iterations of life. We call this karma. There's, there's levels of purification. And at death, you go to another life. We call this re reincarnation. Now that's appealing for some people, right? Like, to be honest, I would prefer to be taller. So if that happened, that would be great. The problem is, is that you're radically separated from your loved ones. So it doesn't fit on an intuitive, visceral level, the desires, the ultimate desire of our heart to be with our loved ones for eternity. So the Hindu cosmos, and I say this with respect, doesn't satisfy the human heart. Then we come to the Buddhist eschatology. At death, you are simply united to this anonymous universal consciousness. There's no consciousness. You're simply an undifferentiated rainbow, stardust, pebble, you're unconscious, but you're sort of quasi alive. The problem with that is I want to see my loved one's face. There is something about, now there are days I don't like myself, okay? I get it. There's days that some, you don't like your personality or maybe some of the idiosyncrasies of your, your personality or how you think or whatever. But ultimately on a, just a visceral level, we want to be who we are were, right? And so when it comes to the Buddhist eschatology, it's not satisfying because an anonymous, impersonal, undifferentiated life does not satisfy the human heart. Then we come to the secular West. I, I'm calling it a religious theory. The secular West tells us at death, don't worry, you'll become nothing. nothing. Don't worry about it. You're nothing, right? As one scholar suggests, this is way too brutal to be honest. Right? No one can live this out. Right? However, Christianity offers something radically different. And I'm about ready to get Pentecostal on you. Okay? Jesus, and this is what Christianity offers. Jesus is risen, so therefore we can rejoice. How does that work? We'll talk about that here quickly. Acts 3. It's a good Friday. Jesus is crucified on a cross and he's experiencing unimaginable pain. The word excruciating comes from the Latin word meaning from the cross. I want you to know this. Romans did not invent crucifixion, but they perfected it. 
And crucifixion is death by asphyxiation, slow death by asphyxiation. So as Jesus is experiencing unimaginable pain on the cross on our behalf, both Matthew and Mark tells us that Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Before this, Jesus tells us, as John tells us in his gospel, that he sees his mother and then he sees John and then he looks back to his mother and says, behold your son. Then he looks back to John and he says, behold your mother. So what both gospels are saying is that something is happening. Please hear me. Something is happening as Jesus is dying on the cross. First, Jesus is willingly willingly going to the cross in partnership with his father in their separation. Or I'll say it this way. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit willingly participate in their own separation on our behalf. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he saying? He's not just saying that because he's alone. He is saying that because his eternal relationship with his father has been ruptured. And Jesus willingly, willingly sacrificed this eternal relationship of mutual relatedness with the father and the spirit so that you and I could have restored relationship with the Trinitarian community of infinite delight and intimacy and blessing. So Jesus stood on or stood in on our behalf. Second, the death of Jesus is directly connected to Jesus telling uh, John to take his mother into his home. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I, through my death, am creating this new relational world filled with shalom, filled with blessing, filled with this new relationship and intimacy that you can have with the Father. It is in the death of Jesus that he bore the sins of the world, bore our suffering and the sickness and the stress and the tensions and the brokenness and the heartache and all the suffering of the world in his body. He absorbed it, held on to it, and then he released life and blessing. And then he released a brand new relational world marked out by God's blessing and a living relationship with God who sees you, knows you, understands you. Can I, come on. So then we come to Act chapter four. Actually, before we get to Act chapter four, I think it's important for us to understand that what Jesus is doing on the cross is like what happens when you have a Berkey water, water filter. If you don't know what a Berkey water filter, just think of a water filter. I love this analogy. I use it all the time. But Jesus, much like a water filter, took on the pollution of sin. Now think about a water filter. A water filter, what does it do? My wife tells me that there's a lot of chemicals and toxins in our water, okay? So we got a water filter and what you do is you take all this toxic water, you put it in the filter and what the filter does is that it holds on to all the toxins. And then when you turn the little knob, fresh water comes out. 
This is what Jesus did for you and I on our behalf. He absorbed sin, death, suffering, shame, all your tensions, all your heartache, all your paranoia, all your loneliness, all the destruction that you've experienced in your life, all the dehumanized habits that you've, that you've embraced. He has embraced all of that. He held on to that and then he released life through his death. And in his death, he brought death to death. Acts 4, then we have all four Gospels are very clear. We find this in Matthew chapter 28. We look at the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all are unanimous. They all say that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, what what does that mean? It's important for us to understand what that means. It means that Jesus was thoroughly, thoroughly dead, and now Jesus is thoroughly physically alive. He was thoroughly dead for three days, and now he is thoroughly physically alive. Many people assume that when we say Jesus is risen from the dead, that we simply mean that Jesus has gone to some non-temporal spatial place we call heaven, a disembodied place. Jesus is some sort of a quasi-spiritual being that is now blessing his disciples. But when we look at the grand mosaic of Easter stories, Jesus is not like Homer's wraith-like ghost. When you look at these stories, Jesus is not a Christ silhouetted figure floating around blessing his disciples. Jesus is not shining like Rihanna's diamonds. Can I get an amen? Jesus, what, when you look at these stories, Jesus eats fish with his disciples. I love it. He walks alongside two disciples. He makes breakfast for Peter and the disciples. His body can be touched. It's graspable. It's solid. It's physical. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. Resurrection is not another way of saying that Jesus went to heaven. He's kind of a spiritual quasi being that now blesses his people. Resurrection means re-embodiment, that the old material of Jesus' body has been used up. And through the power of God, there are now new physical properties. Jesus, in other words, is fully physically alive again. Am I getting too Pentecostal on you? I promise I'm not a mad scientist. I'm just trying to describe these beautiful stories that are attempting to tell us something about the mysteriousness of, of the resurrected Jesus. Then we come to Acts chapter five. We come to John chapter 20 and we see that Mary is weeping. She's grief stricken. She looks up and she assumes that she's looking at the gardener. In fact, it's Jesus. And then they're having a little conversation. The tete-a-tete is, com- is, is, is remarkable and fascinating. Uh, Mary is explaining what, what, what had happened to this gardener. And then the gardener, who is Jesus, turns to Mary and the words of one pastor, gives the shortest sermon ever and says, Mary, actually in the Aramaic, he says, Miriam, which is her original name. Everyone else knew Mary by her old name. She was the one with seven demons. She was the one that men used her for whatever reasons, right? She was the one that was objectified. She was the one that was broken. Jesus does not name her Mary. Jesus names her original name, Miriam. It was the name that her mom and dad named her. This is the name that Jesus is naming her. Jesus is speaking to her using her name and she recognizes the voice of God. 
What is Jesus doing? Jesus is bringing about a new relational world. He is naming Miriam. He is saying, I see you. I know every failure. I know your past. Yes, I know what happened to you. I know what that man did to you. I know your experiences, but I'm not naming you by your past. I'm naming you by the future world that is now coming through my death, burial, and resurrection. I'm naming you by a new relational world brought about by my death. That's essentially what John is telling us is happening. Then Jesus tells Mary, do not cling, in the literal translation, do not cling on to me, right? First mention of Klingons in the Bible. Ha ha! Trekkies, there you go. And then he says, for I must ascend to my father And I love this, your father. And I must ascend to my God, but now it's also your God. What is happening here? Jesus has broke the power of death and is now launching into the old world of creation, a new relational world filled with God's living presence. So what are the implications of this? What does this all mean? Number one, Jesus is risen means Jesus has reversed death. Jesus has turned death back on itself. In other words, Jesus has not re-described death. Jesus has defeated death. Number two, what does this all mean? It means that Easter is not a happy ending to a fairy tale where it essentially means that one day if we follow Jesus, we'll fly up like 10 trillion miles from here and we will find ourselves in a location we call heaven, living in some disembodied way on a disembodied cloud, playing with disembodied little baby cherubs, right? That's my definition of hell. Can I get any man to that? (laughs) This is not a happy ending. Easter is about a happy beginning. In fact, the gospels all say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is the first day of the week. They're saying this is the seventh day of the week. In fact, it's actually the eighth day of the week. This is the beginning of God's brand new world. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the world, creation, time, and space is now starting all over again. And this world now, because some of you think, oh, that's just way too abstract, Chris. Let me just bring it a little bit more personal. This world now is no longer defined by the power of death. This is now a world, this new creation world is filled with God's blessing. This world now is made, through Jesus, has made relationship with a Trinitarian community of infinite delight and love available to everyone. This is a world where you are seen and you can now see other people. This is a world where you're known and understood in a living, interactive, creative relationship with God, your Father. The relationship break between you and your Father in heaven and you and other people has been broken. And you're also empowered You're also empowered, not just to be known in a narcissistic sense, but you're empowered to see other people. You're empowered not just to be blessed, but to bless other people. You're empowered not just to know yourself and to be known, but to know other people and to understand other people. You are free to do that. The Bible calls this life before death. Easter is first life 
before death. Life before death. Number three, Jesus is risen means that the future, please hear me, I'm not a mad scientist. If this is like doing something to your brain, we have aspirin at the end of the service for you. But it specifically means that the future is physical. It's solid. It's thoroughly alive. Guys, one day in the future, when God makes all things new, heaven and earth, we will be reunited with our Father in heaven and with our loved ones, not in an undifferentiated, unconscious state. We will be re reunited with our loved ones in our physical, resurrected bodies. Because here's the logic, what God did for Jesus in bringing him back from the dead, which is technically speak to be re-embodied, God will also do for you, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and not only that, God will do this for creation. God, at the end of history, will make a new heavens and a new earth, and he will wipe away every anguish, every sorrow, every tear, all the pain, all the suffering, all the heartache, all the death will be removed, expunged from God's good world. And I know this sounds crazy, but this is, this is what Christianity is all about. And I have to say, man, this isn't as crazy as the Hindu cosmology. You can take that and that's fine. I have much respect for that, but I'll take this. This is the greatest story ever told. That our future is a personal future. It's a physical future. It's more real and more alive than right now. And this is why we can say, as in the words of one scholar, that we are no longer a shadow of our former selves. It's funny, I'm 45 years old. I know I look 28. But I've been looking in the mirror and I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm talking to my wife. I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, look at all the gray in my beard. It's like, ah, you know. I'm getting old and I have two sons of thunder. They're almost 11 and they, one, they're like raptors. One comes from the front and one comes from behind in random moments throughout the day and they intentionally try to hurt their 45-year-old dad. In fact, they're calling me Papa, an old man now, right? I still can handle myself, okay? But I'm thinking about aging, right? And many of us, as we age, we start to think, oh man, I'm a shadow of my, of, of my former self. But in the words of one scholar, if you're really thinking like a Christian, no, 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 no. No matter all the aches and pains, no matter how old you are here today, no matter what you're going through, some of you are experiencing chronic disabilities or chronic illnesses, and we believe God can heal you. But even in the delay, I want to encourage you, that is not the final word over your life. You are not a shadow of your former self. You are a shadow of your future self. And this is why I'm going to get Pentecostal on you because one day you will be running like you've never ran before. Some of you, you wanted, you wanted to run a 4240. Yeah, in New Heavens, New Earth, Joel and I are going to be running a 4240. And we're going to be showing off our new bodies, right? But the future is thoroughly physical as God wipes away every tear. It has to be.
That's precisely the meaning of Jesus is risen. Four, as we close here, Jesus is risen means that this is a radically self-involving statement. In the words of one author, this means that if Jesus is raised from the dead, one cannot, and if you believe that, one cannot minimally be involved. If it happened, it matters. The world is a different place from what it would be if it did not happen. The person who makes this claim that Jesus is risen is committed to living in a different world. And we are commissioned to tell the world the greatest story that's ever been told. So as we close here in, in prayer in two minutes, the poet Jill Essenbaum in her poem titled Easter Lament, and I think this is where a lot of us are at. Like we're talking about and celebrating the reality of Easter. But I think a lot of us will probably, as I mentioned this uh, poem, probably feel more like her. And this is what she said in her, her uh, Easter poem. She laments that for her, Easter is a depressing time because its celebration of abundant new life almost taunts her by reminding her how non-abundant her own life is and how everyone I ever loved lives happily just beyond or just past my able reach. My response to this, and I'm sure many of you maybe can resonate with this, you're like, today I feel dead inside. Or today I feel depressed. Or today, Chris, man, I just the last two years have been miserable, been haunted by anxiety, riddled with, with, with fear. Some of you are experiencing loneliness in a cosmic way like you've never experienced before. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you are grappling with deep theological issues. Many of us are all kind of on this crazy spectrum of human experience and emotion. And my response would be to you and to this poet. It's really simple and I wanna be pastoral right now. I just wanna welcome everyone to early Sunday morning. In other words, welcome to discipleship. Every disciple experience the same thing. Remember, as we look at the grand mosaic of these Easter stories and as we kind of patch them together, the disciples were grief stricken. They were disoriented. They were afraid. Some were really skeptical. Many of them were panicked. They were running around. 11 male disciples were hiding behind locked doors. They were slow to believe. Not the female disciples. Can I get an amen? But the male ones, right? They were astonished and marveled. In fact, we have two disciples in a crisis of faith on the road to Emmaus, right? They're walking away from their faith. They're walking away from their church. They're walking away from their God. They're walking away from their theology. Jesus gently comes alongside and leads them into a deeper and more mature understanding of God. They didn't even recognize him until he sat down with them and broke bread and then he vanished, right? Physically, Jesus was there. Remember Peter, Peter is riddled with guilt over his betrayal of Jesus and his sin. Jesus' response to that was, hey, I'm gonna cook some breakfast for you, Peter. Now, if Garrison, who's like my number one guy, decides to betray me, I find out, I'll probably have a few choice. He, he would never do this, I mean, he's amazing. But if he did that, I would probably have a few choice words with him, right? Most of us would. Jesus, instead of condemning Peter, he cooks him some breakfast. And then he takes a long walk on the shores of Galilee. 
And in that conversation, he restores Peter to his uh, place and recommissions him to lead his disciples. Think of Thomas. He's a good guy, not a bad guy. He gets a bad rap. He's pretty skeptical. He wants evidence. That's where most of us are at. We want evidence, evidence, evidence. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. He wants evidence. He wants to say, okay, if, if this is true, I want Jesus to appear to me. Eight days go by. Jesus appears to Thomas and Thomas is able to touch the body and the wounds and the scars of Jesus. And he cries out, my Lord and my God. We have Mary. Remember Mary. She's grief stricken. She's sobbing her face off. She's forlorn, forlorn and alone. Jesus comes to her and says one word. And then he commissions her to tell the good news of Jesus. This is the Easter world that Jesus brought about through his death, burial, resurrection. It is filled with a new living relationship with God, your father. It is filled with a God who cares for you. It's filled with a God who will come alongside of you and answer your questions in time. It is filled with a God who comes to forgive you of your sins and your failures. This is the God we serve. All these stories, as I close here, all these stories highlight how Jesus, not us, but Jesus brought the unimaginable bodily life right in the middle of a world framed by death and suffering, sin and sickness. And Jesus is still doing the same thing. Jesus, by his grace, because he has overcome death itself, is now coming to everybody in their circumstances, in their frustration, in their betrayal, betrayal, in their shame, in their death. And he's speaking life and blessing and hope and renewal over them. Jesus is saying, I know you. I see you. I love you with an everlasting love. I know what you're going through and I'm here. I'm here. This is Easter. Jesus has risen from the grave. You might not feel good right now, but remember that's part of discipleship. One day you will feel good if you open your heart up to the living God who loves you with an everlasting love. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. Every eye closed, every head bowed. I thank you today that we would know that we're blessed. I know there's some people you would probably even describe right now, I just feel dead inside. I just need life. I want to celebrate. I want, where's the joy? I need joy. Holy Spirit, I just ask you would come and fill your sons and daughters with your joy and with your life. Lord, I thank you that because of Jesus, we have access to a new relational world filled with blessing. A world where we now have an intimate, creative relationship with our Father in heaven. Lord, I thank you that Death has been defeated. I thank you. That means that there's new life before death. And I also thank you. That means that God in human history has the final word over death and sin and shame. And that final word is new heavens and new earth. 
And I thank you for those who are in Christ. We will meet Jesus and we will see him. And God will wipe away every tear. And I thank you that we will be reunited with our loved ones. I thank you that death has not, is not the final say over creation, but it is the word of God demonstrated in the cross and the resurrection of the Son of God. So I thank you as our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed. I pray for those who right now might be struggling, might be thinking about, okay, I want this Jesus. And maybe here today, you're, um, your heart's open. You're like, okay, okay, Chris, I want that blessing that you're talking about. I, I know that I, I do not have a living relationship with God. And what you're talking about makes sense. I might not fully understand it, but it makes sense. And I want that, Chris. I want to be seen. I want to be known. I want to love. I'm tired of being alone. I'm tired of tired of a life riddled with anxiety and fear and brokenness and sin and failure. And maybe, what time, maybe one time in your life you made a decision to follow Jesus, but now you're just kind of, you're kind of doing your own thing. Or maybe some of you here today, you've never made a decision to say, okay, God, I want to follow you. I want to be a part of what Chris just talked about, this Easter thing. I want to be a part of that. If that's you, I'm gonna pray with you right now. If you want Jesus to take over your life, you wanna enter into this new relational world of blessing and hope and forgiveness and life and peace, unimaginable peace, I'm gonna have you on the count of three, raise your hand and then I'm gonna pray for you. One, two, three. If you want this God, go to raise your hand. Thank you, I see those hands, 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 I see those hands. Thank you, Jesus. See those hands. All right, you can put your hands down. If you raise your hand, I want you to take it and put it on your heart. I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Church would also like you to repeat this prayer after me as well. Dear Father, I give you my life. I put my trust in you, Jesus. I thank you for new life. I thank you for forgiveness of sins. I thank you that I'm not alone anymore. I thank you that I'm blessed in you. Thank you that I have life and new life in you. So I open my heart to you today. Do what you want to do. Say what you want to say. In Jesus name. And everyone said, can you give God a hand this morning? Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.